scripture reading this morning is Deuteronomy chapter 27, verses 9 through 26. Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, Keep silence and hear. O Israel, this day you have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. That day, Moses charged the people, saying, When you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simon, Levi, Judah, Ishgar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal, for the curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Nephtali. And the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's nakedness. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with any kind of animal. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us this morning. Let's pray together as we turn to God's word. What a privilege this morning to be able to call you Father. Through the work of your Son and by the power of your Spirit, we get to be called sons and daughters of the one true living Father. Thank you for that. Help us to experience your fathering this morning through your word. Your love, your care, your guidance, your rebuke, your correction if needed for any of us. Help us to rightly receive your fathering through your word this morning. It's in the name of the Son we pray. Amen. Well, to know my Father is to know that He loves 
the Oklahoma State University Cowboys. <laughs> Beloved to my father are the Pokes. And so some of my early memories are going to OSU uh, athletic events with him and with my family. And so kind of early on embedded into my memory is one of my still favorite chants that I would hear there. And you probably know it well if you're loyal and true. Orange power, right? And I loved being able to figure out what side am I on and which one do I get to say and hear in response and back. And you know, like you, you guys, if you have a team, I'm, I'm sure you have a chant, but because it's Father's Day in light of my father, I'm not going to dishonor him by giving any other chants that you might say of your state school. But those chants are, are not everyday chants, right? Uh, the, we don't say that every day. We don't go around trying to back and forth, say orange power to other OSU fans every day. Those are for game days, right? Game day. Game day is the, the day, the time for, for the chanting, for us to kind of come together and, and say things out loud together as loud as we can and hear them in response. Game day is the, is the time, the, the planning and the, the preparation, the talking are all over. It's, it's a day now of decision. And, and on that day of decision, on that day of the game, that the chant can help form us as a, as a whole, can unify us around a team and around a purpose. It can help encourage us and the, the team that we're rooting for. And, and it just seems like that's a, a natural impulse from humanity. It's natural for us to want to memorialize things, for us to want to add some ceremony and some pageantry to what's going on today specifically that are days of decision, that are days of where we're going to figure some things out like a game day. And God commands Israel to do the same. A, a day of decision is upon them as they stand on the cusp of the promised land and as they look forward to when they will be in that land and a day of decision that is going to face them there, that is forthcoming. And God calls them to renewal and he calls for renewal of them as a people and a commitment for a ceremony of sorts to memorialize God's law, to, to set in memory how God had fulfilled his promises to them as a people and brought them to this place and to set a trajectory for them as his people as they move forward into the promised land. In other words, the, the ceremony, the pageantry, all this stuff that's going on here is still continuing to, to form them as his people as they move forward. God is still with them. He's still guiding them. And he does that very carefully with the ceremony of sorts in chapter 27. So with the declaration of the last kind of sections of the law, I mean, chapters 12 through 26 was a major section of, of law, as you, you know, surely is burned to your memory in many different ways, through the miscellaneous and various laws that we've covered. Moses then moves them into, all right, we're, we're done with that section. Now we're moving to more some ceremonial matters for, for when that day is to come. So if you look in back chapter 27, verse 1, Moses and the elders of Israel, they commanded the people saying, keep the whole commandment that I command you today. You might have even noticed as we read that, the, the shift that Moses has been speaking, but now Moses includes the elders along with him. I, I think... Uh, that that is uh, in part because Moses knows that his time is limited at this point. Moses is not going to go into the promised land with him. God had made that very, very clear. He'd asked for, for that to happen, and God still said, no, you're not going into the promised land. So Moses knows that his time is near. His leadership is going to meet an end. And so perhaps he collects these elders as, as the people who will be those who will lead them forward in some of the things that they're going to say and commit themselves to on this day. Moses and the elders were to be the people that were to lead in encouraging them to do, verse 1, to keep the whole 
law, all of the commandment of God. Keep is such a vital word all the way through Deuteronomy, and and here it's repeated again for them to hear so that it would be embedded even further down like that chant, keep this. They need to know this and be able to say it at any point. What should we do with God's word? We should keep it. And this is not just for an individual. This is for all the people of Israel. Everyone was included in this here. No one is exempt. It's not just for the elders, just for the Levites. It's all the people of God are to keep the whole commandment of God. God wants a whole of Israel to give this wholehearted obedience to the whole command. They are to hear it. They are to do it. They are to keep it. It's what we are to do with the word of the Lord. James says something similar, right? In James chapter 1, verse 22, don't be hearers of the law only, be doers of the word of God. And and I think that we need to remember how much of a privilege it is to hear and be able to do what God wants. Remember the, the context that Israel was going into where they'd have these Canaanites that had these gods that they didn't know what they wanted from day to day. They were temperamental or they could change you know, based on what they think is happening in the season, or, or is there rain or no rain, and what sacrifices should we make to get the God to do what we want him to do? They, they were always shifting and moving, and yet Israel has this God where they know exactly what he wants them to do. He's told them, he's repeated it, and he says, not only hear it, but do it. Keep it. Keep this whole command. It's a privilege to hear God's word and to be able to listen and try to obey him. The path of blessing is not to be just hearers, though. It's to be doers. Jesus says this in Luke 11, verse 28. Blessed are those who hear and keep. And we need to be reminded of the privilege that that is, that we can walk in that blessing to not only hear the word of God, but to keep it. And and John says, although we might not remember this often enough, especially when we're going through miscellaneous laws of Deuteronomy, John says in 1 John 5, 3, that these laws are not burdensome. So keeping and doing and obeying God is is not a pain, it's not a hassle, it's not oppressive. These are good commands from a good God. He gives them to his people for their good. And I just wonder if we see it that way. Do we see God's commands and his words as privilege? Do we see things like, you need to love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you? Do we see those as good commands from a good God, a privilege to be able to walk in by his power? Do we see the commands to be quick to listen and slow to speak as a good command for us? Or maybe the one that says, don't look to your own interests only, but look to the interests of others. Counting their interests as more important, more significant than your own. Do we see those as good commands from a good God? They're all for our good. And in keeping them, there is the the blessed life. That is where blessing is. Jesus said, blessed are those who hear and keep the word. Notice that the... Keeping them is blessing, not because of the fruit, necessarily. There, there might be fruit in obedience. There will be some fruit in obedience. But the blessing is not because of the fruit. The, the blessing is found in obedience itself, because we're obeying God. We know what God wants, and we can obey Him by His power. That's the blessing, that God has told us these things, and we can walk in them. So let's remember We turn to more words from the Lord, that it's a mercy that God spoke. It's a mercy that God gives commands. It's a mercy that he instructs us. For Israel, they know how to please God. They know it brings honor to God. They know how to love God with all their heart and soul and might because he's telling them. He's showing them. In almost every area of life, he's telling them this is what it can look like. Israel should know 
that blessing of obedience, of, of not only hearing but keeping the law, and they should walk that path. That's the path that Moses is trying to lead them on and encourage them with. I mean, Israel had heard the law. God had mercifully spoken, and now they're to keep it. But notice the win today, verse 1. Today, it's a day of decision for Israel. They've had many of them, and here's another. Here's the time you're to keep it today. Moses is leading them to keep it in this moment. But he's also preparing them as they commit themselves to keep it today for what lies ahead for them in the promised land. Look in verse 2. On that day, on the day, you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today. On Mount Ebal, you shall plaster them with plaster. Skip down to verse 8. He says, and you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. They are soon to cross the Jordan. That's the day they're looking forward to. And, and that may not sound like a, a major movement in, in our, to our ears, but for them, this is a major thing. They're finally coming to the place that God has given to them. It, they tried to go one way, and then they were scared, and they turned around, and then they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and a generation was taken out, and they come back up the backside. They're about to cross over the Jordan to the land that God had finally given them. He, he had promised them so long ago. It's a major movement to cross the Jordan. And so there's something set up for when they get there to commemorate, to memorialize what's going on there. He says, when you get there, set up some stones and write the law on these stones, write the law. Perhaps he's speaking about chapters 12 through 26. Maybe he's speaking of the Ten Commandments. Maybe he's thinking of all that he's given them in Deuteronomy and what they heard at Sinai. We're not exactly sure. He doesn't tell us plainly. But the law was to be written on plastered stones and set on Mount Ebal. This was a, a temporary provision because it's not at the place within the place, right? It's not where he's going to show them that this is the place that's set aside for you to come and gather and hear my word and worship and rejoice. It's not that place, but it's the place that's close to their entrance into the promised land. And so it's to be taken and used as this place to memorialize, to set this up, to give a commitment to the Lord as soon as they enter. The plaster probably wasn't going to last. So again, it's a temporary provision. Perhaps this ceremony was significant for the when and the where. So in verse 1, you have today, and in verse 2, you have on the day, on that day, looking forward. In, in verse 1, they're on the plains of Moab, looking on to the promised land. In, in verse 2, he's talking about when they cross the, the Jordan, when they're in the actual promised land itself. And I think one commentator helps us when he says that Moses' concern is not with the 24-hour period beginning with the crossing of the Jordan, or even with the details of the inscription. His words rather demand that the day of decision of Moab, which is where they currently are, becomes the day of response in Canaan, the promised land. In other words, I think Moses is signaling to them to be and to continue to be a people who live and move and respond to God by obedience to his word. He wants them to commit to it then and, and when they move forward into the promised land. 
And what they're to obey is, is never in question. God has detailed out in his word, in his law, what they're to obey. God had spoken. He had, they had read it out loud. They had it written down. They're even to plaster it on some stones so that they would have it there in remembrance of what God has said. And then in, in light of that, they're to have the ceremony of worship. Look in verse 5. There you shall build an altar to the Lord your God on an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. And you shall sacrifice peace offerings and shall eat there, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. I love how many times like there's the command in Deuteronomy, which we think of like there's a lot of law, it's kind of oppressive, lots of things to obey. How many times he commands them to rejoice? Here he does it again. They're, they're here to set up this altar. It's a distinct altar. It's not like the altars in Canaan. It's uncut stones. It's, it's not made into a certain image. They're just to take these stones and to sa- sacrifice on them. And these sacrifices were sacrifices of worship in response to God. Uh, again, I think this altar is a temporary altar set up for them, but it's an important step that once they get into the promised land, they're again being reminded and committing themselves as the people of God that we are a worshiping people and we have one God. And so we do things distinctly and we do things to show that we love this God. This is to be a day of response. The words plastered on the rock nearby would show them their need for this offering as they look at the law plastered on these stones and recognize, like, we're not keeping that perfectly. And so what do we need to do? We need to make an offering. So here we have this offering, a burnt offering. is is an offering for sin, a sacrifice for sin. God is the one who has brought them to this place, given them this word, and that word shows them their guilt, and yet they have a provision in the midst of their sin They have offerings that they can make. And on top of that, who gave them what they needed to sacrifice? They were slaves in Egypt, and yet God had given them so much that now they can come to the promised land as his people with something to sacrifice because God has provided all along the way. And so when they are able to do this, what they should do is that they should then respond to that in sacrifice of rejoicing. This would have been the peace offering. And this peace offering is rejoicing not just for individuals, it's for the whole community to share that there be communal rejoicing. There to eat and rejoice is the command from God. And so here in verses 1 through 8, this, this ceremony with these words written, these offerings made, it's a beautiful picture of Israel's relationship to God in the promised land. And while the emphasis on the response of Israel is to have this happen in the promised land, we, we need to recognize that it's not just about their response. They're also recipients in the midst of this. They, they are the ones who have been brought into the promised land by God. The, the promised land is so clearly in this chapter presented to them, not something that they have staked a claim in, but God is the one who's giving it to them. They're recipients. They're then responders of what God has given. And that's all through the chapter, all through Deuteronomy, all through scripture. They're recipients. They are to receive the law. And in response to it, they're to write it down. They're to keep it. They're to receive the promised land. And in light of receiving it from the Lord, they're to offer these sacrifices. They're to worship. They're to eat. They're to rejoice. They are recipients of what God has given to them. But they're to do this because out of all the nations on the earth, out of all the peoples on the earth, they are the people of God. And as the people of God, here's what they are to hear from the Lord. We see this in verse 9, that Moses and the Levitical priests said to all of Israel, Keep silence and hear, O Israel, this day 
You have become the people of the Lord your God. Now this time the priests jump into this with Moses and they join perhaps again because Moses' time is near. And here in the priests, we have the covenant mediators. These are the people that are going to go in between, like we're going to read and know the covenant, and we're going to try to help Israel and all of Israel's people to be faithful to this covenant. So they're kind of the covenant mediators. And in the promised land, they are the primary covenant mediators, as mediators, as we know Moses is, is going to be passing on. And here's what they're to say, shut up and listen, Israel. I mean, that's a newer translation, but it's very accurate. The, 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 the word here, if you've been following us in Deuteronomy, it's everywhere. It's all over the place in Deuteronomy. It's a foundational response to the, to the people of God who have a God who speaks, who have a God who has spoken to them. They have heard God's voice and they lived. And because that's true, they should perpetually be people of the ear, perpetually be people who hear God and his word, even they go on to even repeat that word over and over again. You, you, the Shema. Shema means here. And they repeat that daily as a people. Hear, O Israel. Those words would have been on their lips, in their ears, over and over again. And here, it doesn't just say hear, but keep silence and hear. And I think that's added just for exactly what I did with it, to bring emphasis to, to, to this already key word in Deuteronomy. Here is over and over again. And they're going to add a little bit more emphasis. Keep silence and hear here, it's repeated in Deuteronomy, because God spoke and they lived. Job, when he is addressed by God, you might remember the ending of Job. What, what does Job do when God addresses him? He says, I need to put my hand over my mouth. Proverbs talks about listening and hearing as a, as a point of wisdom. Listen to instruction and correction and guidance. The, the Psalms cry out like, we, we are the ones who need to be listening and waiting on the Lord to speak to us, to address us. We're waiting in silence on God. Silence is the right posture for waiting on God's word. Silence is the proper response when God is speaking. And in a noisy world, church, it is good and right and wise for God's people to be a people who keep silence and hear because God has spoken. And when we think about silence, often it, it leads us to be thinking about solitude as well, because it's like that's the only time you can have silence is when you're on your own. But notice that this is a corporate command. They are together. They are the people of God together. They are declared that. And he says, as a, as a body, as a, as a nation, as a people, as the people of God, keep silence and hear Again, because God has spoken. So it's not just for individuals. This is for a, a people. This is for the people of God. And it creates, the silence creates the, the right condition for the solemn time of hearing God's word, of hearing from God himself. And so there's this good and sacred silence that they're to have. Yeah, I love the, the silence that we get when we, when we open up God's word. And the, and the only thing you could hear is the, the sacred rustling of those pages as they're being turned to the right place in Holy Scripture. That's a good thing. And there ought to be a sense that when we open up this book, that there's a different kind of silence, a different kind of respect, a different kind of honor, a different kind of hearing, a different kind of listening that we're giving to this that we don't give anywhere else. Because this is the word of the Lord. And when he speaks, we need to shut up and listen to him in a way that we don't do with anybody else because he alone is God. And so we need to keep silence and 
hear from him. The, the people of God didn't move away from being the people of the ear. They're still the people of the ear. Paul tells Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of the scripture. That would have been some of the Old Testament. Give yourself to reading these things out loud with one another. Because guess what? The people of God, we're, we're the people who hear. God has spoken. And we get to hear it and, and not die. Because God is merciful and so we need to keep silence and hear. And the first thing that they hear is so good. It's, it's not a new status. It's a renewed status as the people of God. He says that today you have become the people of the Lord your God. They're, they're having this covenant renewal. A renewal of who they are as the people of God. And as God's people, they were the ones that God had redeemed. He chosen, loved, redeemed them, pulled them out, sustained them. And yet they rebelled against him. Decided to go their own way in the wilderness. Rejected him as being their God and they his people. They chose other ways and so they do need a renewal. They need something done different than before. They, they need to be reminded that today you're, you're the people of God. God hasn't abandoned this covenant because of the last 40 years in the wilderness. And so here's a renewal ceremony. And it's God who brings it about. He brings it about by the judging of that wilderness generation. He, he brings it about by bringing this generation, this current people, onto the edge of the promised land, promising to send them in there. And it's God who is the one who hasn't cast them off, but has continued to say, hey, you need to say this out loud with one another, that today you are the people of the Lord your God. He renews the covenant with them, and he calls for them in light of that grace and mercy to respond to that covenant. Words of verse 9 including the keep silence and hear, need to be heard as words that are breathed out in grace. Because they had cast off God and God hadn't cast them off. And here's the right response. Verse 10, you shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. Always, their hearing is to lead to them doing, keeping obeying the law in response to the grace of their God and their status as the people of the Lord their God. They need to be the people who obey his word, who keep it. God has spoken. And because he's spoken, they are to then respond with obedience and be an obedient people. It's, it's literally plastered on a rock for them to be reminded that we have these words to obey. It's plastered everywhere. Or as one says, now, the, the, the divine demand for an obedient response is to be fixed in Israel's national consciousness. This is why it is repeated over and over and over again. He wants to fix it into their consciousness. What kind of people are you to be? We're the people of the word. We're the people who obey. We're an obedient people. That's what they are to be in response to God. As the people of God, they're renewing their commitment to obey God, and they declare it again in the promised land. And so Moses is going to move from looking at today, where they're committing themselves to looking forward to that day in the promised land, and on that day, they are to be the people who still keep and obey God's word. They're to be the people who continue to respond in that dramatic fashion, and he brings up the drama in verse 11. That day, Moses charges people saying, again, looking forward, when you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. 
right? So I, I have a map. I think this is, might be helpful. It's, it's probably small for many of you. But you can see the Jordan River running kind of right through the middle of there, maybe between two seas. And the, the crossing over of the Jordan, and not too far from the crossing over the Jordan, is that town called Shechem, which would have been in the middle of these two mountains. And it's kind of blown up a little bit on the bottom there. And you see the, on the two mountains with Shechem in the middle are these tribes split up in half to go on each side. I, I don't know, uh, you know, if you're thinking about this division, there's no seems to be explained rhyme or reason to the division, but we know that it's at least equal. And so there's two mountains for the ceremony. One representing cursing and one blessing. And the tribes are split evenly and put on these two mountains. They, they would have been able to respond and hear one another in this setting as they wouldn't have been mount, mountains. I mean, they're 3,000 feet tall would have been the highest one. So, I mean, larger hill, mountain, mountain for Oklahomans. Um, but depending on where you're from, maybe not so much of a mountain, all right? And I don't know why some It'd be like, man, I got the short end of the stick that I'm on the cursed mountain instead of the blessed mountain. Like, I want to be on the blessed mountain. I don't know what well, God told you to do this. So they don't, they, they can t- take it up with him, I guess, but there's no other explanation given. And then they are given words for these mountains that the Levites are going to declare. And, and then all the people on these separate mountains are to respond to these. So here's some of the words. Verse 14, the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice so that everybody can hear. Verse 15, cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, amen. And here they are, they're going to start the ceremony. And as orange power, that chant kind of got impressed upon me and stuck in my head at an early age, this ceremony would do the same. All the people of Israel, half of them are going up on the cursed mountain, half of them are going on the blessed mountain. I mean, that was saying in your head, if you're, if you're an eight-year-old and you're going up on the cursed mountain and you're hearing these words and you're having to say back, amen, like, why did we climb up here? Now we're saying these things and we're hearing these things. It would have been an impressionable thing. These words, though, are a little bit more jarring than orange power. I mean, the first word that they are to hear is cursed. These words are also more formative, rightly, than orange power. Cursed is how they start. Cursed, it's a declaration of God's judgment, uh, This is the lack of God's blessing. These are judicial decisions, cursed. For these actions, cursed. And in saying cursed, God is showing the inevitable consequences attached to these forms of disobedience. In hearing cursed and saying amen, deep impressions are likely being being formed in Israel's consciousness so that they would know that this way of living is the way of cursing. Against the Lord our God. And so they're declared cursed over them and they are to respond. Now this list of declarations and what things are cursed um, gives a picture, I think, of what God had desired for community life to look like. So when we hear cursed and we see it this number of times, we're only seeing kind of the negative, but I think that implied is the positive. Much like the Ten Commandments, right? You, You shouldn't steal. Well, like, there's the inverse is like you should be generous you should care about others you shouldn't kill like you should again you should work to love your neighbor i think the same is going on when we hear these curses and so the the inverse is likely true now why out of all the things that we've read in deuteronomy why are these things listed in this why are these things cursed here and why not just list the ten commandments again perhaps with the the ten already memorialized in so many ways perhaps 
these are a little bit more narrowed focus. Like, we know you have these. Let me narrow this in a little bit for this generation and the generation that's going to enter in the promised land. Perhaps that's what's happening. Perhaps these are areas of special attention, and they're specific because of the vulnerabilities of humanity in these areas. It seems to be constant areas of of need for God to instruct. These are areas where if they go bad, they go real bad, and they go bad very, very quickly. In other words, these are also areas that are against not just certain specific laws, but against very designs that God has made for humanity, made for community. So perhaps that's why these things are listed and not something like maybe the Ten Commandments again. But the first word of this curse is, is like the first word of the Ten Commandments. In verse 15, the man who makes a carved or metal image an abomination of uh, to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman and sets it up in secret. And all the people answered and they say, amen, that's an abomination. There's commands one and two kind of listed there. There's, there's only one Lord. He is to be above all others. And you're not to make any images either of God or of any other idol. Those things are strictly forbidden and an abomination. But these things would have been the way of Canaan. So the land they cross into, if they looked around, once they get further than these two mountains, they're going to see these kinds of things. People making images and worshiping them, bowing down and worshiping them. Or people making images and saying, well, this isn't God itself, but it represents our God. And so we bow down and worship and we make sacrifice to it. And he says to Israel, no. God is a jealous God. He loves his people and he's jealous for them. He wants them to love him. And so he says, don't do this. It's an abomination. It reminds me of what Isaiah would go on to say in Isaiah chapter 42. He says, I'm the Lord. My glory I give to no other. My, my praise I don't give to carved idols. He, he strictly forbids that and calls it an abomination. Right? The positive of that is to say that, that glory and praise and honor, they belong to the one true living God alone, not to any other thing, not to a carved idol or image, even if it's made in the image of God. He says, don't do that. Just praise me in the ways that I have given. Or Israel is to be a people who worships God and worships God alone. God wants a people love him with their whole heart, who worship him as wholly devoted people. And so he, he again says, cursed are those who, who follow the way of idolatry. Verse 16, he continues, cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother. And, and all the people shall say, amen. Again, this is nothing new. This fits right in line with the, the ten, 10 words, the 10 commandments that we've already seen in the book of Deuteronomy. Clearly, that the family and, and the honoring of the family and honoring of right relationships and right authority within the family were important matters to God and for this community. The, the next curse goes after greed and lying and stealing. And he says, curse be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark and all the people shall say, amen. Right? It's a way of gaining more for yourself and cutting out uh, something for your neighbor. It's a way of, of stealing and, and greed and lying. Verse 17 says, Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say amen. Verse 18, Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road, and all the people shall say amen. I don't know if they're looking around at this point. Like, do you remember that guy when he did that to that blind man? And so now we're going to write this down. I don't know where this one comes from and, and any other reason that this is here. So it clearly is a looking out for the most vulnerable. But again, like, I don't know if I see this, if they're all looking at the same person. Like, remember when that guy did that? Like, you shouldn't have done that. Let's not do that moving forward. And so that's why it's included. In verse 19, he continues again, like, they're looking out for the most vulnerable. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow. And all the people shall say, amen. The, the most vulnerable receive the special attention from the law to, to receive care, to receive protection. They are to be a people who, again, 
positively thinking, like they, they love their neighbors, they love themselves. They're, they're looking out for the needs of others. They're looking to their interests. They're trying to provide and be generous because all that they have has been given to them. And so they're looking out for the most vulnerable. And, and in these commands for the most vulnerable, again, God's heart is on display. And God's people are to reflect that heart by loving their neighbor. They are to be a community that takes care of one another, that looks out for one another, where there's, there's peace and love and kindness and generosity displayed in their midst that would have made them a distinct people in the midst of a greedy world and land of Canaan. But then Moses turns again to, to a lot more sexual morality, these Remaining commands and curses uh, go with that area of perversion. These are areas where, again, are, are quickly perverted, quickly lead to destruction with dire consequences. And so Moses is really, really clear in the law about them. In verse 20, Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife, because he has uncovered his father's nakedness. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with any kind of animal. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his mother-in-law. And all the people shall say, Amen. Sexual purity was, was always to mark God's people. From the, from the beginning on, Like the, sexual purity mattered. It was to mark them. It was to make them distinct in a fallen world that had given themselves over to sexual perversion in all these different ways. I mean, you, you read the book of Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and, and you start to look around, and you're like, these commands are needed for people. They, these are good restrictions that God gives to them. That they have their own history to attest to how quickly these go wrong. And we look at these curses and all of these, Israel could look back and we say, Man, we have reason to see that not only is this not the way to go, but it's a cursed way to go. That God sees these things as ways that lead to destruction. They look back in their history, even the past 40 years, and say, some of these things were evident among us. And that didn't go well. It was a cursed life. They look into Canaan. They see the people and what they're doing there, their, their lives and the things that they take part in. And they know that they're going in to dispossess that land as judgment from God upon them. And they need to think, that's a cursed way of life. But the breakdown of these, any of these that are listed as curse, leads to a massive breakdown in community. A, a corruption and corrosion of the things that need to be in place in order for them to exist as a people. There are real results for disobeying and constant disobediences to God. There are real results to go against and rebel against God's good design that he has given in all these areas. And as God's righteousness hasn't changed, and a lot has changed since that day, but God's righteousness hasn't changed, this is a warning, I think, to communities that God's design is a better way than what the world has come up with. Like, we haven't outthought God now and got into a more blissful place to live in by changing some of these and thinking that maybe sexual purity is what we make it, and that might be better. Or that maybe being greedy is a better way to live. And so let's just move our neighbor's landmark if we want. You know, all these things that God had designed us, designed community, designed humanity to, to function a certain way, and he blesses that way, and the other way is curse. And what's implied here? As God's righteousness hasn't changed, and they know and are, are thinking through and even announcing and hearing and saying amen 
in terms of God's righteousness is that God sees their unrighteousness. To say cursed and for them to repeat it is to say that God sees sin and that he's going to visit it. And the last declaration of this curse is kind of the capstone. Verse 26, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, amen. Notice how they confirm the law. Not by saying amen. They confirm it by doing it. And they all say amen to that. That that's how we confirm the law. No hearers of the law are justified. It's the doers of the law that confirm the law. The amen then binds them all as all of them are now accountable to the whole commandment, to all the words of the law, to all of these words. Their amen seals them into this word. And in light of that, it seals them in their guilt, doesn't it? With this capstone curse, there's this growing impression, like a tide that's kind of been rising as we've gone through this. You're thinking through this, and you know what lies ahead if you've heard the story of Israel before. You you see this rising tide that they're not going to be able to do this, are they? Like they're saying amen, but they're not going to be able to fulfill these things. And surely Israel, as they're repeating these things, would have felt and known this to some degree. The, the very setup itself implicates them in this. Notice that there are 12 curses. 12 times they say curse. There are 12 tribes. All of these tribes and all the people in these tribes all saying amen to each one of these 12. There are two mountains and all are split between these two mountains. And notice that none are left in the middle. There's no middle ground here. There's, there's blessing and there's cursing. Nothing in between for the people of God. What this means is that any who breaks these words comes under God's curse. Amen. And again, much may have changed since that time, but God's righteousness surely hasn't. And so this curse should fall not just on the people of Israel for their disobedience, but should fall on all if any have disobeyed the righteousness of God that's displayed in these words. And you fast forward just a little bit in the story, and that's exactly what happens to many who are saying amen on these mountains while they're in the promised land. Due to their own sin and rebellion against the words that are so clearly listed, listed here and have been plastered on these stones that they walked by as they went into the promised land, curse fell upon them because they couldn't do it. And yet in these words, it, it probably didn't seem hopeful when I read it, and sorry to ruin your Father's Day and say curse 12 times to you, but there's a hopeful note of anticipation within these 12 curses that I think all of Israel could have caught. Knowing that all fall under this curse, right? They, they should have been implicated. What the law does, what these words do is it shows them their guilt, it reveals to them their lack of righteousness, and it would then surely, hopefully, cast them back upon the Lord in dependence upon Him. So all of it, in one way or another, is, is pointing, all those who are put under this curse are, are pointed to something beyond the law. This law brings us to curse, and that's what we know. But I think it points further, because the law itself points further. These curses remind them that the law was never intended to provide for them ultimate justification, ultimate forgiveness with God. And so as Israel comes and they say, amen, they would fall under the curse and, and, and perhaps they would then take the law's route 
and go and sacrifice for their sins. And what does that sacrifice point to? It wasn't an end in itself. It was saying that your sin, that you fall under the curse, and that that curse is going to fall somewhere, and that you need to take that curse out on something. Life must be given for your sin. Blood must be spilled for your sin. But in slicing the neck and throat of a lamb, they should have known that this is not equal to me, that surely this isn't all God requires because of all of my disobedience. So even the sacrifices themselves were to keep looking forward. So the law and them obeying the law and falling under the curse of the law would lend them to being people who start looking to God over and over again for his ultimate and final provision. To look forward to what the law and all these things given in the law, like sacrifices and the temple and the place within the place, what all they look forward to, it give them to be people who look ahead to the promises of God. And the law witnesses to it, to what's coming. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, he says, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although what? The law and the prophets bear witness to it. Right there gives us so much justification for spending weeks in Deuteronomy, even if you've not liked it very much. Like, Paul says it's okay. Because what the law is doing is it is showing us something. It is bearing witness to something. And what is it bearing witness to, Paul? I'm so glad he answers. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The law is bearing witness to the ultimate provision that God would provide. And we know that as we get to look back at it and say, that's Jesus. They are to look forward to it. We're looking back and saying, God provided for forgiveness. He provided for justification. It wasn't through the law, but the law witnessed to it. And what the law was witnessing to is there's, there's justification found in Jesus, the, the, the one and only Son of God, who, as the spotless lamb, he gave his life as a sacrifice so that if you believe in him, you can be forgiven. You can be justified. God provides justification and forgiveness and righteousness through his son, Jesus. The, the curse that we talk about here, that talks about the righteousness of God, that has not changed, condemns us all. That curse should fall on us. Happy Father's Day. Curse are we because of our sin and disobedience to God. Because we have rejected him and his good commands and his good design and decided that we would go our own way. All of us have done that. And there's only one way to avoid this curse because, again, the curse still exists upon those who disobey God. There's only one way to be set free from that, to avoid that curse. And Paul tells us it's not through works. You look in, in Galatians. That might be our first impulse is to say, I, I'm under a curse. How can I work myself out from underneath it? Paul says you can't. In Galatians chapter 3 Words to put in our hearts as we go through Deuteronomy. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be every one who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. And do. You confirm it, not by what? Just hearing it, but by doing it. And guess what? We don't confirm that law. We confirm our own way. And so cursed be us because we don't abide by all things written of the law. And he says, it's evidence. Because we have this argument, maybe, perhaps, I can be justified in another way. And he says, no, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. How are we justified then? The righteous 
shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. So how do we get out from under the curse? By faith. And here's the redemption that God offers. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The curse that should have fell on us for our disobedience fell on Jesus. But we know Jesus didn't deserve that curse. And so when we turn to him in faith, he can grant us righteousness because he has it. We didn't have it. He has it. We didn't deserve it. He deserved glory and honor for all that he had done. And instead, he takes the curse that we deserved. And so we look to him in faith and we say, we can be redeemed from the curse of the law because he became a curse for us. That truth, that reality, that's something worth celebrating, memorializing, remembering. And God tells us to do that. As his people, he tells us to remember it, to celebrate it, to memorialize it. We, we take the Lord's Supper together. And what's this supper? What's this meal? This meal is us saying together corporately, as we've heard the word of the Lord, as we've been silent and heard, it's us saying together, amen, to us deserving the curse. If you can't say amen to you, you're deserving of the curse of God, this meal is not for you. You instead need to see that that curse is for you. But if you can say, when we look at this righteousness of God that we haven't then added up, and we can say, amen, this is a meal for you because of our own sin and disobedience to God. But it's also our amen to saying that that curse fell on another for us. That we deserve that curse, amen, it fell upon us, it should fall upon us, but it fell on Jesus. It's our amen to that. It's our amen to the anticipation of his final and full justification of us. We are declared justified because of our faith in Jesus. And what that means is we know we're not fully sanctified. We're not fully his. We don't fully obey the law even now as his people, but he's going to come one day and he's going to finish what he started and fully and finally justify us so that we would be his people. He would be our God. This meal is a meal of amens for the people of God. So if you're a sinner, if you're a disobedient if you're unrighteous, this is a meal for you to say amen to, and you need to hear that the curse fell upon another, and that that curse has been fully taken away from you by your faith in Jesus. It's a meal of looking to Jesus. If you're a believer, come take this meal, saying amen in your heart with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're not a believer, we need some amens to be said from you before you take this meal. Instead, look to your need and look to Jesus who provides for your need with his righteousness. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for becoming the curse for us. To read all these laws and to think of how many I've broken, it's depressing, it's heavy. And without an understanding of, of what you did and what you provided, without an understanding that you became the curse for us, Lord, I, I would despair. We all would, Lord. We 
been shown so much grace and mercy. We thank you, Father, that you speak so clearly to us, that you remind us from beginning to end of your standard. You've, you've not changed. You've created us for a purpose, and our sin has gotten in the way. It's, it's defiled it. It's destroyed it, and yet, Lord, you have come back, and you've, you've restored through Christ all the potential that you created us to have. Lord, you've given us the ability to worship you through the forgiveness we have from the cross, God. You have restored us to a place where we can walk in faith, and through that faith, Lord, experience obedience and listen to you and obey what you want us to do, and yet we still fail. But because you became that curse once and for all, God, we no longer have to worry about those curses falling on us. While we were sinning, God, you died for us. God, help us to be a people who just receive that truth, who live the gospel and how we think and how we act. Help us be a people who listen well and who respond in obedience because you said so. And we know that you love us and we trust that what you say is good. Help us not to slip into, into legalism thinking that if we obey more, we're loved more or we're blessed more. God, we have all the spiritual blessings of the heavenly places because of what was done on the cross. All of us who believe the gospel, we have that. Help us not forget that our obedience is, is not to be expressed because we're earning our salvation or attempting to, God. It's to be expressed because we have it and because we love you and because more than anything else, God, you love us. We're grateful for that. We're thankful for our community here, Lord. We, we see the picture of Israel split and, and facing each other on two different mountains and speaking truth to each other and listening and receiving. And God, we want to do that. We want to be a people who are faithful to do that. Help us not take it for granted and devalue it. It's such a privilege to be here together to be with each other during the week or, or later on today in small group. We need to be reminded constantly, Father. We need to be renewed in our minds. God, help us. Help us to obey. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.